Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Well, good evening, everybody. How are we doing? Man, oh man, uh, November, I almost said October, uh, November, no, today's the 9th, right? Yes, November 9th, it was so gorgeous out today. Anybody go outside today? Oh, it was so awesome. So, so, so awesome. Holly, anytime there's a gorgeous sunrise, I always think Holly has the greatest view of the sunrise right now. Oh, man. Anyway, all right, guys, well, welcome. Um, we've got uh, an action-packed night. We've got a lot to talk about. But uh, Deacon Rich will be here. He was doing a wake in uh, somewhere in Akron, so, but he will be here. Hey, Dan, could you help me out with the cord here? Just, oh, actually, I think I'm good. Yeah, there we go. There we go. All right. Okay, Let, uh, let's pray ourselves in, and uh, then we'll get going. Sound good? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, we give you thanks and praise for this glorious day. We thank you so much for calling us here as a community. Lord, we ask you to... Fill our hearts and minds with your presence. Help us to dive into this topic, this huge, rich topic. Make this prayer, Jesus, in your name. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. Let's start with the title. Let's start with the title. Let's just start with this. Faith and Science and the Divine Disclosure. Faith and Science and the Divine Disclosure. So, one of the messages that you get from the culture is that faith and science, that God and religion are at odds with each other. Who's heard of this? Who's felt this? Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. You feel this, you see this, yeah. Faith and science, God and religion, they're at odds with each other. The truth is that, the, the, the truth is that they are not only not incompatible, that science as we know it developed out of a specifically Judeo-Christian worldview. It was because of the view of, the view of the world that Christianity brought into culture that the modern sciences flourish. So that's all I have to say about it tonight. So yeah, go home, that's it, all right? So that's it, and I'm just kidding. Okay, so so much more to talk about. It was because of Christianity, not in spite of Christianity, that the modern sciences got off the ground in the first place. We're gonna get into this quite a bit tonight. So. We're going to be delving into some deep stuff, some thick, meaty stuff. So again, there's loose leaf paper over there. I'm an active learner. I need to be writing things down or, or scribbling, uh, jotting things down while I'm listening to something. So feel free to take notes. There's, I don't see anybody moving. That's okay. All right, so maybe you're all auditory learners. Great. Okay, cool. So what we're going to do is we're going to be talking about this relationship between faith and science. And what that will also touch on is the nature of God. So we're going to be delving into the, uh, a lot of delving tonight, uh, I see. Uh, we're going to be delving into the sort of rich Catholic philosophical tradition that as Catholics, we have a very sophisticated way of thinking about and speaking about God. That some of the brightest minds who've ever lived, um, they've been Catholic priests and monks and religious and nuns, uh, and their writings about God, it's... Uh, it's so much more than just simply, well, just believe, right? So there's a rich, thick, stable ground to stand on. So the philosophical tradition about uh, speaking about and thinking about God, and that will finally lead us to a conversation about God's own 
self-disclosure. So if this is who and what God is, um, then what is revelation? So this is kind of what we're, this is where we're going tonight. How we as Catholics view and understand revelation. This is kind of piggybacking off of a lot of what Chris uh, spoke on last week, which was really superb, by the way. You did a great job. Didn't he do a good job, everybody? Yeah, he did. A little, just the softest round of applause for Chris. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was really great. So that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. So starting with the Catholic Church's rich philosophical tradition of thinking about and speaking about God, we're going to start with a quote from this guy. Anybody know who this guy is? Anybody who that is? Who? Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton was one of the most influential spiritual writers, retreat directors of the 20th century. He grew up as a a pretty militant atheist uh, and had a pretty powerful conversion. But in his uh, acclaimed autobiography, The Seven Story Mountain, Thomas Merton admitted, he said, when I was a young man, I always thought of God as, quote, a noisy mythological figure, a noisy mythological figure. So if that's what God is, if God's a noisy mythological figure, then, then faith can only ever be, at best, a blind leap, assenting to, yeah, I believe that this noisy mythological figure is real, right? If that's what God is, then faith can only ever be a blind leap. Speaking of blind leaps, come on now. never seen this before who's never seen did you think he was gonna die were you like preparing yourself it's just like ah! I remember seeing that for the first time I was probably like seven my babysitter showed it to me and I was like like on the edge of my seat and I remember being like ah! when he did that it was amazing okay in this clip and in the minds of so many people faith is just this irrational leap was that rational yes or no no, that's totally irrational what he did. It's like, let me just quiet myself and just, and he does a big dramatic breath oh, and then foot goes out and then, oh gosh, oh my gosh, right? This irrational leap into the unknown, holding, holding some belief in the absence of evidence, right? That's what our contemporaries, that's what the secular culture, that's what our atheist friends think that we believe, that they think that that's what faith is, this sort of, in the absence of evidence or the absence of good evidence, it's holding on to this thing contrary to reason. Listen to this. This is a quote from Sam Harris, who's, again, one of these 
uh, famous atheist today, says this, the conflict between religion and science is inherently and very nearly zero sum. The success of science often comes at the expense of religious dogma. The maintenance of religious dogma always comes at the expense of science. This is what culture, this is what academia, this is what they believe. Um, that, you know, when you have the Greco-Roman pantheon, you've got Apollo, the god of the sun, who brings the sun in his chariot across the sky. Well, one course on, you know, astronomy, it, you, you kind of put Apollo out of a job, right? Like, when you learn a little bit about the atmospheric pressure, Zeus gets out of a job, right? How thermodynamics, all that works, like, a little bit of science pushes these noisy mythological beings to the edge, right? You see what's going on here? This zero-sum game. More science, less religion. More religion, no room for science. This zero-sum game, zero-sum game. This is not what we believe. To the minds of many, science and religion are in this great conflict, and they claim they have been for a long time that this battle between faith and reason, religion and science, it's been raging since the beginning. Not true. Not true. And they claim that the enlightenment of the 17th and 18th century, they brought us finally out of those medieval dark ages. Let's talk about those medieval dark ages. Chris talked about those medieval dark ages a little bit last week. Those medieval dark ages, they brought us things like Chartres Cathedral. Look how dark and awful that is. They brought us things like Palestrina. So dark and primitive. It's so, you're supposed to be laughing right now, okay? Okay, it brought us Thomas Aquinas. These dark ages, this idiot Thomas Aquinas. He was such an idiot. It brought us things like Dante and his poetry. Believe me, the dark ages were anything but dark. They were anything but dark. So science, friends, science is championed as the best and most credible way to know anything. Right? And faith is, it's construed as like believing in the absence of evidence, the leap, the leap of faith into the unknown. It's not rational. It's not reasonable. It's not demonstrable. All of those things. This issue, I'm bringing this up tonight, and I really wanted to hone in on this tonight because for so many folks, especially young folks, this is the issue that drives people away from religion in many, many ways. When you ask, when we have surveyed young people, we ask them questions about, hey, why'd you stop believing? They say a few things. One of the things they say is we just stop believing what the church says. We stop believing the story. Secondly, we find the church's claims untenable. Thirdly, because of science. Those are the reasons. Science, the issue of science. This is the cause of the rising group, the, this, this rising populace known as the nuns, right? Not the N-U-N-S, nuns, but the N-O-N-E-S, nuns. Those who claim no religious affiliation whatsoever. We're really good at unevangelizing our young people. We're really good, um, especially in this area, that we're not, we're not good at building the bridge or showing the connection between faith and science. Back in 2014, there was a, they collected data, the Pew Research Forum collected data that 40% of 18 to 29 year olds claimed to be atheists. 40, that's, that's a shocking 
substantive like block. And it's only gone up since then. They claim that belief in God was irrelevant and nonsensical because of this. Science. Science. They claim that the discoveries of modern science make belief in God impossible. Back to what Sam Harris was saying. More science, less God. More science, less God. And that's true across the board. Like many people that I grew up with, people I was in youth group with, people I went to retreats with, they like went off to college. They took a sociology class, and so they started saying, or they were taught that our religion is just one way up the mountain. So that began to denigrate the faith. And then they took a, you know, another science class in college, and they're like, wait a minute. I don't think this is real anymore. It just, it's, it's, there's so many of my peers, so many friends that I grew up with that I went to retreats with who they do not believe anymore. And th these are the reasons why. These are the reasons why. I think a huge part of why this has happened, a huge part of like the reason why my peers, my friends have left the faith is because they don't really know they're not really clear. They're not, they don't really know what, like, what science is. What does it claim to be able to do? What is it meant to study? What's its scope? They're confused about science. They're confused about proof. What is a proof? What counts as proof? How do you prove a thing? And they're confused about what we mean by God. These three things, science, proof, and God, these are what I want to talk about. Because if you're unclear on this, you're going to quickly think that like the church is stupid. The church is really stupid. They don't really know what science is. They don't really know what proof means. And they don't know what serious people, people like Thomas Aquinas, like this philosophical tradition that I'm talking about. They don't know what we mean when we say God. So many people think when we say God, we're talking about the noisy mythological figure, right? That's not what we mean. That's not what we mean. Okay. So here's the question. Does science disprove God or make belief in God unreasonable. Say no. no. Say it like you mean it. No. Say it like you're a Baptist and a, you know, something. Say it like you mean it. No. That was great. Hey, people, you're awake. I love it. Okay. All right. No, it does not. It does not. In fact, Christianity, like I said, Christendom was the seedbed out of which the modern sciences grew. Like it was our belief that the natural world was rationally ordered. That we have a God who is Logos, right? We say, in, we hear in John's prologue, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came to be through the Word. That Word, Word, in Greek is Logos. Logos means the, the rationality, the mind, the, the ultimate meaning behind everything, right? Everything we say, everything that's in the universe, every visible thing, in the universe, we believe, because of revelation, came through reason, came through the logos. It's rationally structured, meaning it's knowable. It's intelligible. Like our mind can conform to it. It's, it's, it's constructed by logos. All things came to be through the word. And here's the other part. We were very clear that there's a distinction between creator and creation, right? You worship the creator, you don't worship the creation. 
right? If, if nature is God, if nature is divine, you don't investigate it. You don't probe it. You don't measure it. You don't manipulate it. You don't do experiments on it. You worship it. You venerate it. But if nature is the expression of the divine mind, then you can seek to understand it. Right? Look at the etymology of the word recognize, recognize, to think again, right? When we recognize truth, when we recognize meaning, when we recognize intelligible structure in creation, what we're doing is we are rethinking God's thoughts. God thought creation into being, and when we recognize it, when we recognize something, we are rethinking God's thoughts. So the Judeo-Christian worldview holds that the world is a created reflection of God. It reveals him, it points to him, it gestures to him. It's not the same as him, right? We're not pantheists. Very important distinction. We're not pantheists. Look at Romans 1.20, right? Romans 1.20. Paul says this, Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, God's invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. I'm going to read that again. Romans 1.20. You can write this down if you're jotting this down. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. From the beginning of time, what Paul is saying is that all men everywhere have been able to look at creation and have been able to recognize, oh, this is like a reflection of a creator. To see creation, you can intuit creator. This is what Paul's saying. All right, let's look at some of the, uh, I want to look back at that whole, the whole lie that church and science, faith and science have been in this, this uh, battle since the beginning. I want to look at, I want to review some of the who's who of, uh, from the science world. All right, let's start with this guy. Niccolo Copernicus. Anybody ever heard of Niccolo Copernicus? Great haircut. Okay. You're, this is going to be a theme. A lot of great haircuts in these guys. Okay. Niccolo Copernicus, he was a devout Catholic canon, meaning he was, a, he was an ordained priest. He was a consecrated churchman, and one, he was the one who proposed the heliocentric model of the solar system, as opposed to the um, geocentric model, right? He was the one who had the audacity to say that the earth was not the center of the universe. All right? Ordained priest. How about this guy? Look at that hair, that's some good hair. Sir Isaac Newton, right? Sir Isaac Newton, buried at Westminster Abbey in, in London. He invented calculus. That blows my mind. I never even took calculus. I never got that high, right? But this bro was like, I can't figure this out. I'm just gonna invent a new math, right? He invented calculus. He discovered and articulated the law of gravitation and he wrote the Principia Mathematica, which is arguably one of the most important seminal works of, of mathematics in the history of science, the history of mathematics, and in the prologue to the Principia Mathematica, he wrote this, this most beautiful system of sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being, capital B, being. This being governs all things, not as the soul of the world, but as Lord over all. And on account of his dominion, 
he is wont to be called Lord God or universal ruler. How about that, huh? You don't really learn that about Sir Isaac Newton when you learn about the apple, right? The dude was totally devout. He had discovered this law of gravitation and he just burst into this praise of God Almighty for like, God, I cannot believe you made it this way. And you gave me a mind that could correspond to creation that I could seek to understand it and I could articulate it, right? It's so fascinating to me that both Isaac Newton and Stephen Hawking occupied the same chair of physics at, I think it was, was it Cambridge? I think it was Cambridge. You've got Stephen Hawking, a vowed militant atheist. He's dead. God rest his soul. Lord be good to him. But like the this, this same guy, same discipline, looking at the same universe can be drawn to these two wildly different conclusions, right? Amazing. Okay. Or right, this guy. Check out this guy's mustache. This is uh, Tycho Brahe. Okay. Again, there's some great hairdos here. He's a devout Catholic, and he's the father of modern astronomy. I must ask you a question, Tycho. I will, but I'll, sh oh gosh, I'll shave it for later. Okay, how about this, bro? This is uh, uh, Brother Gregor Mendel, father of modern genetics. He was an Augustinian monk, right? Remember in uh, uh, biology classes learning the Punnett squares? Gregor Mendel, right here. Or this guy, Father Georges Lemaitre, Belgian priest and physicist. He was the formulator of the Big Bang Theory. He didn't call it the Big Bang Theory. The opponents of the theory coined it, named it the Big Bang Theory, because they're like, what, was it like a Big Bang? Seriously, they, they named it the Big Bang Theory to try and discredit it. It's stuck, though. It's kind of great. You know, Big Bangs need Big Bangers, so it worked out. Anyway, that one went over everyone's head. That's OK. Big banger. OK, here's the great thing about Georges Lemaitre. We always think about you know, the, the, the who's who and the minds of minds from the 20th century. Everyone thinks of Einstein, Albert Einstein. Here's the thing about Einstein. Einstein was so troubled because of what his um, theory of general relativity was, was leading him to conclude about the finitude of the universe, that it had a finite beginning. Looking at the evidence that Edwin Hubble, all these people, it was kind of converging on this no, it, it didn't have an infinite past. It had a finite beginning. And he just inserted into his theorems, into his equations, this essentially is made up variable, this placeholder variable, because he couldn't stomach the idea that the universe had a finite beginning. And it was Georges Lemaitre who convinced Einstein, you're wrong. You're wrong. And Einstein corrected his theory. He corrected the equation. He said that it was the greatest blunder of his professional career. Catholic priest calling Einstein to task. I love it. OK. Or this guy. This is Brother Guy Castelmagno. Another great name. OK. OK haircut, B plus haircut, A plus name. OK. Guy Castelmagno, he's a Jesuit priest. He is the head of the Vatican Observatory. We have two world-class observatories. One is in, I think it's Castel Gandolfo in Rome. The other is somewhere, I think, out west in the United States. Chris, do you know where it is? Is it? That's exactly what I just said. OK. Yeah, thank you for affirming. You mean some good nodding? Yeah. Top, yes, that's right. Area 52. He, ooh. Speaking of Area 52, uh, he wrote a book 
called, Would You Baptize an Extraterrestrial? So he responds to all of these emails that come in, that people are like, you know, I have all these wild space questions, and he responds, and he turned all those email responses into a book. It's pretty fascinating. Would you baptize an extraterrestrial? I won't tell you what he said. You'll have to buy the book yourself. Okay. Um, or how about these amazing nuns? Look at these amazing nuns. Okay, this is, these are sisters Emilia Ponzoni, Sister Regina Colombo, and Sister Conchetta Fendardi. Um, they were, I, I don't remember what order they were in, but they mapped the position and brightness of, get this, 481,215 stars. Look at those nuns. How awesome is that? Look at faith and science being at war with each other. It's so disgusting. I hate the war. Okay. All right. If this hasn't convinced you, I don't know what will. Here's the point. The church loves science. The church loves science. I love science. Like, our lives are so enriched by science. I love air conditioning so much. <laughs> I can't even tell you. Like, I, I couldn't, I, I just think the Lord was like, you could never have lived before central air conditioning. I, I love air conditioning so much. Like I think about, I mean, directly my life, it would be so different if it wasn't for science. I don't, many of you probably don't know this. I've had 29 eye surgeries in my lifetime because I, I don't have a lot of hobbies. Um, so, no, I'm just kidding. So when I was in seventh grade, I had my first eye surgery and I've had them pretty cons consistently until I think 2018 was the last one. So I'm due for one. You know, they're like comets. They come around every few years. <laughs> I'm due for one, but, um, but yeah, like I would have gone blind a long, long time ago. I've got this degenerative, degenerative autoimmune disease, and if it wasn't for science developing and research papers being written and studies happening, they wouldn't have developed the kind of technology that they developed that kept a pace of my disease, and I've, like, I can see you. I can drive a car, you know, all those things. So I love, I love science, I love antibiotics, I love Tylenol, I love taking pills when I'm in pain. Um, like, it's so good. It's so good, all of those things. It's not science that the church has a problem with. It's not science that the church has a problem with. This is what the church has a problem with. Scientism. Scientism. This is a, not a discipline, this is a philosophical perspective. This is a worldview, right? Scientism is different than science. What is scientism? It's the reduction of all knowledge to the scientific form of knowing. Like the only legitimate way to know anything, according to scientism, this goes by other names, um, naturalism uh, is another one, materialism, reductionism, there's always an ism in there. When you hear ism, you can be sure that the person is a bad philosopher, right? Because they're doing philosophy. This is a philosophy. Um, but what this is saying is that the only thing that can be known, the only legitimate truth we can stand on is a truth that is known or discovered by science. Follow the science, right? This is what this is. This is a philosophical worldview. Scientism is when scientists, ready? It's when scientists stop doing science and they start speaking philosophically. That's scientism. When the scientists stop doing science. Yeah, go ahead. Is that the same thing as like the no, Scientology is a very different thing. Scientology is a, is a very interesting made-up religion by a guy named L. Ron Hubbard. Um, no, that, it's, it, that's, a, that's a, a modern religion. This is, like, this is a philosophical worldview, right? This is what, uh, this sort of just way that a lot of, I mean, it's, it's, it's rampant in the academy, it's rampant in sort of the culture. This, the only thing that can be known is what science can discover. 
Right, so, I mean, let's look at that claim. The only things we can know objectively are things science can verify, prove, and demonstrate. Well, how about that claim? Let's just start with that claim. Can, can you scientifically verify, prove, or demonstrate the truth in that statement? No, you can't. You can't, that's a presupposition. That's something that, like, that, that claim didn't emerge out of a test tube, right? There was no centrifuge, it was like, the only things that can be known are scientifically proven, right? That's not how it works, that's not how it works. It's making a claim about the nature of knowing and the nature of truth. Like you cannot prove the truth of that claim in a laboratory. You can't. It's presupposed. It's presupposed. It's cutting the branch that you're cutting off the branch that you're sitting on. Okay. Science explains everything. No, not quite. Not quite. So scientism, what it does, it reduces all forms of knowing to the scientific mode of knowing. It's a very protracted way of viewing things because it leaves out so many fascinating and legitimate questions. Like science for all its goodness, for everything that's brought into our world, like thank you God for science that's making this moment possible. For all of its goodness, it can't answer so many things. Like a scientist could examine the chemical makeup and, co and compounds of like the structure of these books, right? Like what is this book made of? What's the paper made out of? What's the size, weight, dimension, right? How fast will it burn? All those things. Science can't answer what makes a mystery novel gripping. What makes this book better than that book? Science cannot explain any of those things. The meaning of a book, why is this adventure story so compelling? Those are legitimate questions. Those are legitimate questions. Scientists might be able to understand the chemical makeup of a human body, like, and to an amazing degree can they understand the mechanics and inner workings of the body. To an astounding degree. But scientists cannot tell you what makes for a life well lived. They cannot explain or demonstrate what makes an act moral, right? Scientists might be able to explain the chemical makeup of the paints on the Sistine Chapel. They might even be able to explain, they could explain, color theory and how certain wavelengths and how it interacts with your eye. They can't explain why is that ceiling so beautiful. They can't explain what happens subjectively when you are beneath that ceiling. That's a question, those are questions that fall outside of the scope of science. Those are legitimate questions. Scientists can understand the harm, harmonics and acoustic engineering of how a, how a symphony orchestra works, how the vibrations in the strings, how they interact with the sound box and how that vibrates the air molecules, how that interacts with your, the little tiny bones in your ear and that turns from mechanical energy into electromagnetic energy and how that goes into your brain and you hear Beethoven's symphony. But they can't tell you why it's beautiful. They can't explain why that made you cry. They can't explain why that triggered a memory. 
The sciences are great and powerful. And thank you, God, for science. They're great and powerful at investigating material causes. There's no other, there's no other field that is better at understanding and investigating material causes, the material universe, how the material universe works, matter and energy. That's its, wheel, that's its wheelhouse. That's its wheelhouse. It is only interested in studying the material universe and material causes and material explanations. Its answers are materialistic. And that's okay. That's what we want science to do, right? Answer on that level. Science only begins, it only begins once you already have a universe in the first place. Like there has to be a universe in the first place, right? For science to even begin. Science cannot explain the questions of ultimacy. It cannot explain why there's a universe at all in the first place. Once it's there, they can explain how that moves to there and why that went there and why that exploded. But why it's there in the first place? I got nothing. I got nothing. It's methodologically limited, science. Methodologically limited. What does that mean? It means this. Imagine, imagine that you pull into Target. Some of you, you did this today. Imagine you pulled into Target and you said, I'm only going to buy things that are blue. That's my criteria. Blue soap, blue toothbrush, blue slippers, blue pillow, blue Chip and Joanna Gaines things, right? <laughs> blue everything, right? I'm only going to buy blue things. You load it in your cart, you check out, everyone looks at you like, you're weird, right? You're driving, you're, you're rolling your cart out of Target and someone goes, huh, they must only have blue things in there. Why would that be a wrong inference? Someone explain, why is that a wrong inference? This is where you talk. What's that? It's a small sample. And there's alternative explanations for why there might only be blue things in that cart. Like, for example, I'm blue. Because I decided before I'm going into Target that I'm only going to get blue things. Right? I, I, I methodologically, I intentionally limited the scope of what I will allow in. Right? That's science. That's science. That's science. Or here's another example. Think of um, our, all, all of our favorite places on the planet. Right here, TSA. Gosh, I love TSA. This is, this is a glimpse of purgatory right here, TSA. <laughs> Empty your pockets. Be detached, right? Here we go. Take your shoes off. Ah, okay. All right. Go through TSA. The metal detector. This is a really hard question. I know I said we're biting off a lot tonight, but what is the job of a metal detector? To do what? Detect metal. Laura, you are a genius. That's right. It has one job. One job. I'm going to detect metal. I'm going to do it all day long, every day. I'm going to be the best at it, right? Metal detector. That's what it does. It, it's, not, it's not defective because it doesn't go beep, beep, beep when plastic goes through. It's not defective because it doesn't detect fabric or liquids. That's not what it's designed to do. It's designed to detect metal, right? That's what it's designed to do. 
That's science. Science is designed, it's intentionally methodologically limited to understand and investigate material causes and material explanations. Right? We, we want our science and our scientists and our doctors and our physicists and our engineers. Engineers, raise your hands. Look at all of our engineers. We want our engineers to only limit yourselves to material explanations, right? Like, okay, doctor, my stomach, where's our doctor? You're a doctor, aren't you, doctor? Okay, doctor, my stomach hurts so bad. I'm in the ER, I'm dying, right? And you say, perhaps there are, have you considered gremlins? Are there gremlins inside of you? <laughs> doctor, what, right? No, that's not what you want. Or sir, do you think that you've engineered this bridge Exactly right. To be able to sustain high winds and all those sorts of things, and you know, when the cars and the frequency, you know what I'm talking about. You're like, no, no, don't worry. I am certain that either fairies or angels will support the bridge and hold it if it begins to fall. Fairies or angels, whoever gets there first. I'm like, that's not assuring, you know? That's, that's, I'm not going on that bridge. <clears throat> we want our science to do science. We want our scientists to do science. We want our doctors to do material causes, all of those things. Okay, this is right here. This is getting into the topic of what do we mean by God? What do we mean by God? God is not the kind of thing or the kind of explanation that science is even capable of or interested in detecting. When I say God, when we refer to God, God is not the, the kind of thing that science can detect. It's fabric going through the metal detector, right? There's no beep. There's got no th nothing's going to beep, right? But that does not mean that the fact that science cannot detect or demonstrate or prove via the methods of science the existence of God, that does not mean that God does not exist. In the same way, only blue things in the shopping cart does not mean there is not other colored things in the store. I've methodologically, intentionally limited myself to this scope, these things. God is not one of those kinds of things that science can detect. Stuff other than metal gets through undetected. Okay. A lot of these scientists approach God like people approach Bigfoot, okay? Sort of Bigfoot theory of God. Some say Bigfoot's real. Some, some say Bigfoot's not real. Here's a true story. One of my college friends, his name was Matt because he should be, his name should be known. Okay, because Matt was a squatcher. Anybody ever heard of this? There's a whole, you've heard of this. There's a whole community of people they go Sasquatch hunting, okay? So Matt would like disappear for long, long weekends and him and his buddies would like drive way out in the woods because they had a lead on Bigfoot, right? And he'd come back and I'm like, did you find him? He's like, no man, not this time. I'm like, ah, you'll get him next time, Matt, don't worry. <laughs> Just wait till you get those new night vision goggles. Like, you'll, you're gonna get him. Oh man, yeah. Some say Bigfoot's real, some say he's, he isn't, what's the evidence, right? Some say God's real, some people say he isn't, what's the evidence, right? Or, or back to the story of me as a young kid looking for evidence of the existence of Santa Claus, right? 
Although, I have to show you, this was a few years ago, this is actual photographic evidence. I took this picture at, at yours truly restaurant in Hudson. Tell me that's not Santa Claus and Mrs. Claus. <laughs> you cannot tell me that I did not get a photograph, actual photograph of them. They know what they're doing, those people, right? Like, like honey, we wearing red today again? Uh, uh, do we have an option? Like, of course we're wearing red, right? It's July, why are you wearing suspenders? Anyway. Or the story of the Russian cosmonauts. Remember the space race? They went up to space, the Russian cosmonauts, they get up to space and they look around and they say, well, we're up here and we don't see God anywhere. You're like, ugh, Russians. <laughs> what, like, what do you expect? Are you looking for like a big footprint on the moon? Like, you get to the other side, the dark side of the moon, you're like, oh, there he is. He's, guys, he's back there. He's been there the whole time. I found him. Sneaky God, right? <laughs> That's not the kind of being that God is. Okay, this is critical. You might want to write this down. This is very critical for our understanding. Okay, God is not, we'll get to, we'll get to the writing down in a second. God is not a being. He's not even the best and highest being in the universe, right? So this circle, this is the universe, right? Everything created. In the universe, we have farmers and cows and kittens and businesswomen among other things. It's just a random sample. Okay. There's a lot of in between. Okay. And then there's God at the top, right? This is the Greco-Roman pagan view of the gods, right? The gods were the best and the highest who sat at the pinnacle of creation, right? Think back to Thomas Merton. I used to think of God as this noisy mythological being at the top of the height, the pinnacle, the cosmonauts into space. Well, I don't see him up here. God is not the best and highest being in the universe. God is being itself distinct from, separate from creation. Right, that triangle represents the Trinity. So if you didn't catch that, that's what that triangle's about. Our God is a blue triangle. <laughs> blue is the theme tonight, okay? He is not a being in the universe. He is being itself, standing outside of the universe. Ready? Let's go through this. Oh, hang on. This is what I want to show you. Yes. Who's seen this movie, Prince of Egypt? One of the greatest movies. DreamWorks? Okay. It comes from a story from the Bible also. I don't know if you know that, but um, <laughs> based on truth. It's okay. So Moses, Moses tending the flocks of Jethro. Sheep is wandering off. He comes down. He spies a shrub, a bush on fire, right? But it's not consumed. And the voice from the bush draws him near. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you stand is holy ground. He says, I am the God of your ancestors. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I've heard the cry of my people in Egypt, and I will deliver them. And I, unto them, unto Pharaoh, I will send you. And Moses responds, if I should go back to my people and say, God has sent me to you, what shall I say? What is your name? And what is God's, what is the bush's response? What does God respond? I am that I am. In Hebrew, it's aye asher aye. I am that I am. I am that I am. God is not, let's go back to this. God is not a being even the best, most incredible being in the universe. God is being itself 
unlimited being. So, this is how we want to wrap our heads around this. Okay. What's the most fundamental thing we could say about this thing that I'm holding? It's the most fundamental thing. I, I hear it. What? I think someone said it. Not bottle. Nope. 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 It exists. Right here. Ex uh, so follow track with me. You have to think real hard. Existence is found right here in water bottle form. Okay? So the form, how you said water bottle, yes. The form, water bottle, is limiting, so it's limiting existence. Existence is, this is not infinite being, this is a finite being. This is not a microphone, right? Existence, being, is found right here in microphone form. Anybody's brain hurting right now a little bit? Good, okay. Existence, being, is found right here in coffee cup form. Okay? Existence being is found right here in what form? Human being form, right? I am not the coffee cup. The coffee cup's not the water bottle. The water bottle's not the microphone. It's finite. It's limited. God is not finite. He's not limited being. He's unconditioned, infinite being. His being is not grounded, it's not constrained by anything. Again, Moses asking, when I go to them and I say, God sent me to you, who, who shall I say sent me? Are you, are you the God of the river? you God of the desert? you God of the crocodiles? Like, which, which God are you? In other words, which form of limited being are you? And God's like, no, you got it wrong. I'm not a being. Aa, I share aa. I am existence itself. I am being itself. God stands on the outside of creation, causally responsible for it. We're going to keep going into this. These are the things you maybe want to write down. God is not a being. Say it with me. God is not a being. God is being itself. Let me hear you. God is being. God is existence itself. God is not a being. This is a being. You are a being. That table is a being. God is not a being. Even, he's not even like God being. He's being itself. This is where our brains are kind of like, okay, okay, okay. God is being itself, existence itself. When scientists, when atheists claim that there's no evidence for God, we can, we can make the claim, you just, you just don't know what we mean by God. If you're looking for evidence, like you're looking for evidence for Bigfoot, if you're like a squatcher for God, <laughs> I just saw the t-shirt in my mind. Okay. <laughs> Some great hashtags also. Okay. If you're a squatcher for God, you're going to be eternally frustrated like my friend Matt, who could never find evidence. 
He never came back with tracks. He never came back with fur. He, he certainly never came back with scat. He was always looking for scat. I'm like, ah, oh, gosh. <laughs> we wouldn't expect to find direct evidence or proof of God in creation. Remember a few years ago, I think it was in Switzerland, the whole Hadron Collider. Remember that thing? That gigantic particle accelerator. They were looking for the, the supposed, they called it the God particle. Like, okay, Swiss. Well, all right, geez. The God particle. There was like a slight chance that when they did this thing, it was going to create a black hole in the center of the <laughs> earth, and we were all just going to immediately die. <laughs> They're like, oh, we'll just flip it out anyway. Right? <laughs> I remember reading that afterwards. I was like, they should have consulted us. Like, do like a Facebook like survey at least. <laughs> yes, turn it on, risk the black hole. Anyway, they were looking, they were looking for the evidence, right? They were looking for the, the God scat, right? They're looking for the particles. Where's the God particle? Let me see the God fur, the God footprint. See on the dark side of the moon. No, because that's not the kind of being that God, he's not a kind of being, right? He's being itself. He stands outside of creation, causally responsible for it. In the same way, we could say that the sculptor is not in the sculpture, right? Michelangelo is not in the Pieta. I've seen it. I've been there. I've looked real hard. <laughs> Sound like, are you in there, Mike? No. The, the sculptor is not in the sculpture any more than the author is in the book. However, could we say that the mind of the sculptor is everywhere in the sculpture? Yes or no? Yeah. Is the mind of the author everywhere present in the book? Yes. Causally responsible for it, standing outside of it. Standing outside of it. Okay, I think this is a good time. Take a little breaky-poo, let our brains cool off a little bit, refresh your drinks, and then we're going to do a little Thomas Aquinas proofs for the existence of God. Okay? Okay. Let's come on back. All right. Okay, so I've referenced him already a little bit. But uh, arguably one of the smartest people who've ever lived um, and who wrote just such an abundance um, is St. Thomas Aquinas. He was, one of my favorite things about Thomas Aquinas, apparently he was a very large man, like fat, not pH fat, but like F fat, right? To the point where uh, they had to cut a arch out of the dinner table for him to fit his belly at the table. <laughs> I love that so much. Okay. He was so smart, he would have several secretaries, maybe eight to ten secretaries with scroll and parchment, uh, working on different things at the same time. So he's maybe dictating to this guy a treatise on Psalm 42. He's talking to this guy on something about the incarnation. So he would say a few words to this one, then he, the guy would write it down, and he would move to the next one, say the next thing, da -da 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 -da, all the way down the line. Then he would pick back up and continue. That's how he wrote what he wrote. Genius, absolute genius. So Thomas Aquinas, he was a, he was a teacher, um, and he articulated these, what are called the five proofs. Not, I don't want to call them proofs. He called, he called them the cinque vie, the five ways. So these are five ways of getting into um, a viewer understanding about God's existence. And, and a lot of them have to do with uh, what he calls contingency, the argument from contingency. That's what I want to look at. 
So here's Thomas Aquinas. Good rotund man right there. Look at him, thick. Okay. <laughs> Argument from contingency. Here's how I want you to begin thinking about this. So the word contingency, it's a fancy word that basically means every finite being owes its existence to other finite beings. Every finite being owes its existence to every... Deacon, I need, you are interrupting the class right now. <laughs> hey, well, every finite being... I forgive you. On Saturdays, beginning at 11. Um, every finite being be, owes its existence to other finite beings. The word contingent literally means touches upon, contingere, touches upon. Every finite being touches upon every other finite being. Don't think of this in terms of dominoes, like this causes this, this then causes this. A much better image is the image of interlocking gears. Think of like a very sophisticated clock or watch, where if you move any gear, the whole thing is moving. The whole thing is touching upon everything else. Everything else, everything is interlocked, interdependent. That's what this means. Okay, how does the argument go? Basically this, very simple. All finite being is contingent. Anything you could point to, whether it's Pluto or this remote, everything is contingent. It touches upon, relies upon other things for its existence, for its continued existence. Contingent things rely for their existence on other contingent beings. The whole network of contingent beings cannot explain itself. So there must be some non-contingent, necessary being that we call God. It's essentially how the argument works. But let's take a look at like, how this actually plays out. Let's start with this. How do we explain the existence of any of these individual clouds? Think for a second, how would you explain the existence of one of these clouds? Well, the cloud is a result of evaporation and condensation in the atmosphere, right? Heat from the Earth's surface causing water molecules to vaporize and rise up as they condense as clouds. And I mean, voila, cloud, right? Has that sufficiently, completely, fully explained the cloud? Yes or no? No. No. Because we have to explain that stuff that I just mentioned, right? Okay, well, um, well, the whole water cycle is part of the larger atmospheric realities of the planet, the Gulf Stream, Jet Stream. Abby, you can correct me later if I'm saying these things wrong. She's a pilot. Uh, where there are oceans and bodies of water and land masses and, you know, the whole thing. Have we completely, sufficiently explained the cloud? No, not yet, because we have to explain that stuff, right? Well, the, those atmospheric realities are built upon the fundamental laws that govern our planet, you know, plate tectonics and gravi gravitation and rotation of the Earth, the core of the planet, a lot of stuff. How close we are to the sun, blah, blah, blah. Have we perfectly explained the cloud yet? No, because we have to explain that stuff. Well, those realities are, are contingent upon, uh, dependent upon the, the, the solar system, actually, uh, and how, like, where our planet is, it's one of several, and how at a certain point, 14 billion-ish years ago, a 
massive cloud dust in the Milky Way galaxy congealed and formed these various planets. And yeah, there you go, cloud, voila. Have we explained the cloud yet? No, because that's not self-explanatory. Okay, so go back, okay. So, all right, so, um, uh, okay, uh, all of that, that cloud that turned into the solar system, the sun and those rotating planets, that's all because of our place in the galaxy, right? Still not fully explained, because that doesn't explain itself. Okay, well our galaxy is one of a whole cluster of galaxies and the network of galaxies and the whole universe web thing, you know? And cloud, right? Do you see how by appealing to further causes and further causes and further causes as it goes out, right? This gear, how do you explain this gear moving? Well, this gear. How do you explain that gear moving? Oh, that gear. How do you explain that gear moving? That gear. It's all interconnected. And by appealing back and back and back, out and out and out, we still have not yet fully explained the cloud. The cloud. To sufficiently explain the cloud or anything, anything, you have to appeal finally to some ground of being, to some uncreated source of existence, like some being that doesn't owe its existence to anything else. I, maybe we can put it this way, I am that I am. Again, another one that just went way over everyone's head, yeah. We call that being God, right? So, does science disprove God? No, no, in no way could it ever do that. God is not the kind of thing that science is capable of knowing or discovering, nor is God the kind of being that science is able of disproving, right? He's not that kind of being. Science and faith are in harmony, right? God is a different kind of explanation for the existence of the universe, right? Here's a, here's a great example. Take the internal combustion engine. Right? The internal combustion engine. What is a greater explanation for the existence of the internal combustion engine? The law of thermodynamics or Henry Ford? It's a trick question. <laughs> both. You need both. Right? Or here's this one. There's a tea kettle on the stove, and the water is boiling. And someone says, why is that water boiling? And the scientist says, well, it's boiling, of course, because there's heat being applied to the bottom of the kettle, and it's moving in, you know, making the molecules move and expand, and, and water at this elevation boils at such and such a uh, temperature. That's why it's boiling. And like grandpa comes in and says, nonsense, it's boiling because I want a cup of tea. Who's right? They both are, right? One is an explanation from agency, right? Why? The other is an explanation from causality or materiality, right? They're, they're harmonious explanations. God wrote two books, the book of nature, and he wrote the, and Revelation. They don't, they're not in contradiction. They both reveal aspects of God. Science and faith are in harmony. They're in harmony. God has revealed himself. The first revelation of God is creation. 
right? Romans 120. From the, from the visible things that he has made, his invisible nature and dominion have been, been known and perceived. Revelation is the first, or creation is the first revelation of God. But it's not the only thing that he's done to reveal himself, right? You look at the history of Israel, God has revealed himself to a particular people. That's the amazing thing about Israel. That out of all the people, God has revealed himself to this particular people. And then, in and through this people, in the fullness of time, in and through his son. See, science and faith are different ways of knowing. We can even put it this way. Philosophy and theology are different ways of knowing. Science is, it begins with what we can see and observe and works your way up. And you get to a certain point where you can't go beyond that. Faith begins by accepting a word that comes down. They're different movements. They're different movements. By natural reason, man can know God with certainty on the basis of his works. Argument from contingency, right? You can use our mind to, do, to deduce, okay, everything is contingent, therefore there must be some non-contingent necessary being, God. Man can know God with certainty on the basis of his works, but there is another order of knowledge which man cannot possibly arrive at by his own powers, the order of divine revelation. Through an utterly free decision, that's so important, God has revealed himself and given himself to man. This he does by revealing the mystery. I love this line. His plan of loving goodness, formed from all eternity in Christ for the benefit of all men. God has fully revealed this plan by sending us his beloved son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. What the catechism is teaching us, what Thomas Aquinas is teaching us, is that we can know a lot about God through reason. We can know a lot about God through reason. It's a pretty big slice of God. We can know that there's one God. We know that he's the creator of all things. We know that he's the ground and being of all existence. He's being itself, essence itself. But that does not entail a knowledge of God's inner heart. We don't know by reason God's interiority. We don't know by reason alone what God is like. Take you down memory road here. Sixth grade. I'm in study hall. And there's a girl. We'll call her Chelsea. Because that was her name. Who I had a huge crush on. Absolutely crushing on Chelsea. So you do what you do in sixth grade. You write a note. I professed my love to Chelsea in this note, Cyrano de Bergerac style. Mm -hmm. William Shakespeare was applauding me from heaven. I have professed my love to Chelsea. And then at the bottom, I said, will you be my girlfriend? Box here and a box here. And I wrote, check yes or check no, right? <laughs> OK, so I fold the paper up, paper, football, and I send it through the maze of desks to where Chelsea is. You can see people like, Chelsea, yeah, man, Chelsea. Right? Okay, so we're passing to Chelsea. And I see her get the note. She looks up, looks, finds me. I'm like, (laughs) 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 
She opens the note, and my heart, I'm sitting there, it's like, you know, like a hummingbird in my chest. She unfolds the note, reads it, grabs a pen, one of those gel pens, and she makes a check mark. And I'm like, my eternal destiny has just been sealed. Folds it back up, sends it back through the labyrinth. I get the note. I open it up. She checked yes. Okay. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, baby. So here's the thing. Before that moment, I had this little notebook, okay? And I, in this notebook, I wrote down things that I learned about Chelsea. Some people call it stalking. I called it reconnaissance, okay? <laughs> Doing my homework. So I knew a lot about her. Like, I took notes, you know, I knew when she had, when she, which lunch she went to. I knew that things that she liked for lunch, she liked breadsticks. Okay, I wrote that down, breadsticks. I knew that she had three sisters. I knew that she did gymnastics. Um, I knew she had a, a border collie. Um, yeah, so I wrote these things down in my notebook, right? And I studied them. Those things that I observed about Chelsea, did that entail, did that obtain to a knowledge of Chelsea? Did I know Chelsea? No. No. I knew a, a lot about her, but I did not know her. We can use reason to know a lot about God, but to know him, he has to, what does Adam say, freely reveal himself. Chelsea had to freely reveal herself. So we would sit next to each other at lunchtime. And because I was a hopeless romantic, we would hold hands during lunch. And she was a righty and I was a righty. So I held her hand with my right hand so she could use her right hand to eat lunch. You ever try and eat lunch with your non-dominant hand <laughs> in sixth grade? <laughs> I mean, I ended lunch looking like a Neanderthal. Like, there's like food everywhere, right? So awful. So we would, I would talk to some of my friends, she would talk to her friends, and then lunch would end and be like, okay, bye, see you at the locker. And then we would, you know, it was hot and steamy and man, lasted maybe four days. I know, it's pretty good for sixth grade. It's pretty good for sixth grade. Oh man, now I'm a priest, so thank you, Chelsea. All right, so moving on. This is, like, that right there is a little microcosm of our story. It's a little microcosm of our story. Look what we hear in the book of Hebrews. In many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets. So he's revealing pieces of himself, right? But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also, through whom also he created the ages. The Son is the revelation. God must disclose himself, reveal himself, share about himself, which is vulnerable. We don't think about this, but revelation is vulnerable. Think about any one of us. To reveal yourself is vulnerable. The word itself means woundable, a willingness to be wounded. Look at where that brought him, to the cross, where he became completely vulnerable, completely wounded, through and through, through and through. 
So the prophets, right? So the scriptural revelation, God speaking to the prophets, Old Testament, it is good, but it's not enough. It's good, but it's not enough. This is why back to last week with Chris, we are not a religion of the word made text. We are a religion of the word made flesh. The word made flesh. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible father, right? The Trinity enters into time in the person of the word made flesh. Like that's not a book that's diving into Mary's womb. It's a person. A person entered time. A person crossed the gulf of time and space. The word became flesh. And John's gospel says, and dwelt among us. The Greek is eskenosen. He pitched his tent, literally. He pitched his tent among us. And in his ministry, Jesus revealed to the apostles and the apostolic writers all sorts of things. It says in John's gospel, if we were to write down everything that could be written down about him, anything that he's, everything that he said and taught, you know what it says? Not all the books in the world would be sufficient to contain it. What the apostolic writers wrote, think back to what Chris talked about last week, what they wrote, it points to. So like the Gospels, they point to and they give us access to the person, to the word made flesh. The word made text gives us access to the word made flesh. That's the point. Scriptural revelation, it reveals Jesus, who is the revelation of the Father. Right? Jesus is the visible image of the invisible Father. The word made text is, alone is insufficient. And again, back to last week with Chris. Jesus, in his public ministry, invested his authority to the apostles, and principally to Peter, right? Behold, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Chris went through that last week. The biblical term is binding and loosing. Jesus is investing authority into Peter that in every age of the church, there would be a living voice that would assist the church to properly interpret the word-made text so that we could have real access to the word-made flesh. Like, that's what Jesus wants. He wants us to have true access to the word-made flesh. Because let's be honest, right? The Bible's hard to understand sometimes. Yes or yes? Thank you, yes. Like, there's, like, you read St. Paul sometimes, you're like, bro, give me, like, a comma... Like, break this sentence up, give me a period. I don't know, man. Like, Philemon is like one long run-on sentence, right? Like, come on. Scripture is hard to understand sometimes. There's a, there's a lot of important things in there. And you want to get it right. At least you want to know the guardrails. Like, what's out of bounds? Like, if, if, like, is this interpretation in bounds or out of bounds? According to what Jesus revealed to the apostles in terms of magisterium and tradition. Here's the example. Everyone read this sentence and determine for yourself what does this sentence mean? Just in your head. Got it? Everyone, everyone knows what this means? Yeah? Pretty clear? Okay, what if, what if it's, I never said you stole money? What if it's, I never said you stole money? 
I never said you stole money. 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 <laughs> okay, that's just one sentence. What about like, this is my body given up for you? What about that sentence? What about, like, unless you're born again of water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven? I don't know about you. I, I want to know what that means. And I don't know about you. I don't have the authoritative interpretation on that. I need another living voice inspired by the spirit to guide me to know what this means. So back to Chris last week. Catholics rely on tradition and magisterium because that's what Jesus set up. He didn't just give us the word-made text. He gave us a church investing the apostles with authority because I want you to have access to the word-made flesh. I want you to have access to me. In every age, I want you to have access to me. So the church guides us in interpretation Church doesn't necessarily tell, like, it's not like this is what you have to believe on this particular verse. There's so much. Like, you read any text, like, and you can draw out from it so many things. But there are things that if you draw out that from it, that's not what that means. It cannot mean that. The church guides us. It gives us guide rails on those things. All right, so why does all of this finally matter? Let's go back. Why does this finally matter? Because back to that idea that faith is, it begins with what someone is speaking to me. So back to my example with, with Chelsea. So there were things about her that I knew by just observing her, and there was a lot of things about her that I didn't know, that I couldn't have known, unless she had shared them with me. And in her sharing that with me, I have the option Either I believe you and continue the relationship, or I disbelieve you. Like, either I open and accept what you're saying and lean into it, or I shut it down. Like, this, going back to the very beginning, this, this, is, this is about relationship. This is all about relationship. The astonishing claim that that God who hung those stars the God who is being itself, existence itself, would speak that he comes down and he's revealed himself and he wants to talk to you. He wants relationship with you. That's, that's where this all hinges. Either that's real or none of it's real. Okay, what we're going to do is we've got 10 minutes left. We're going to end in prayer. No, we're not going to end in prayer now. We'll end in prayer at the end. How about let's do this? Are there any questions? Anything you want to dive into? Any questions about what we covered tonight? Abby, you got a question? Yeah. So I was kind of confused on the part at the beginning when you were talking about beauty and like being explained by science. Could you like repeat part of that? How that science can't explain what makes something beautiful? 
Yeah, so like, um, yeah, any, any masterpiece, any work of art, like sunsets, sunrises, like science can explain all sorts of aspects of a thing, right? So take the Sistine Chapel, for example, right? So it can, it can give us a, a true account of the dimensions, the weight, the scale, the mass of the paint on the ceiling. Um, it can give us all sorts of information about the oxidation of the paints. It can tell us the chemical compounds, where these things were mined and found. Um, it can give us all sorts of explanations on light theory and how like, light works and interacts with our eyes. But it can't explain or give an answer, a sufficient answer to the question, why is this beautiful? Like beauty is it's something that transcends the, the sum of the parts. Right? So it can explain the, the matter of the thing. It can't explain the why of the thing. How's, how's that work? Right, yeah, you can even take it in that direction. Neuroscience, brain science, it can, like, you can, you can hook the, the brain up to all sorts of um, monitors and, and discover what's actually happening neurochemically in the brain when you're observing something beautiful. Um, you can talk about all of those things, but it, it doesn't get at like, the deeper layer of the subjective experience of the beauty, right? You, like, there's the, it's, there's, it's the difference between the easy problem and the hard problem. The easy is to explain what's physically happening in my brain when I'm looking at this thing. You, you can, you know, neuroscientists can explain that. But they can't get at the felt subjective experience. Like, why should red elicit an emotion in me? Like, why, why should Brahms' lullaby make me feel this? You know what I mean? Like there's, there's a deeper layer that no scientist could, could fully get at. Yeah? When Isaac Newton realized that God was the author of what he discovered, is that, you, you had mentioned something like scientists can't find evidence of God, but is that revelation? Yeah, it's, it's, that's the first, that's the f response to the first kind of revelation, right? So it's, um, yeah, I would say that's the proper response to creation, right? It's like to, re to recognize that there are laws written into this world, into this universe, into physics, that physics is, is discovering the laws that God has written into creation and to discover the law automatically presupposes or it begs the question, whence comes the law? Where's the lawgiver, right? Um, that, to dis that, that there are laws doesn't explain, um, there's no causality with laws. So like the law of two plus two has never added $2 to my pocket, right? Like knowing that two, like two, plus, knowing that two plus two equals four, like, okay, there, that's a law of math, right? Two plus two equals four. Knowing that has never caused 
money to go into any of our bank accounts, right? There's a difference between the law and the cause. So yeah, I would say like Newton's response to this discovery, Newton's, Newton's discoveries are a response to God's revelation and, and just an honest admission that like, oh my gosh, look at this law. There must be this lawgiver. So I would say like modern scientist Stephen Hawking is just dishonest or he's just disingenuous, right? He thinks that he, ha he has, he said in his, his book, A Brief History of the Universe, that because there's a law of gravity, this is Stephen Hawking, because there's a law of gravity, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing. Like, uh, what? <laughs> nothing comes from nothing, right? Nothing comes from nothing. Um, so yeah. What's that? That's what Stephen didn't answer. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Anything else? Yes, Vince. You made it clear that God is not a being. Yes. That's how I interpret what you said. Yeah. And yet he created us in his likeness. I'm not trying to trip you up, but yeah. I get it. Yeah. You what? I said he created us in his likeness. Yeah. Yeah, um, stay tuned for next week. Okay, so uh, next week is the Trinity revealed. Um, by creating, so here's a spoiler for next week. By creating us in our complementarity, masculinity and femininity, what God made visible and physical is that aspect of his being which is self-giving love, right? So to make us in his image, an image of a thing is not the thing itself, right? An image of the sculpture, like the Pieta was not sitting on the stage up here. There was an image of the Pieta. The image of the thing, it bears a resemblance to the thing. It, it bears a, um, it makes present, visible, perceptible, an aspect of the real thing, right? So there's, in our finite humanity, we make perceptible, visible, tangible, something of God's invisible nature, which is self-giving love. How's that work? I'm looking forward to next week. <laughs> okay. So not necessarily our physical body. Correct. Okay. But also kind of. <laughs> yeah. Anything else? Okay. Okay, well, why don't you join me in thanking Father Pat for his presentation? Yeah. Okay. So, Sunday, candidates, bring your Bibles. And after the homily, which will be given by me, <laughs> I will call you forward and bring your Bible. And your leader will be Ruth and Robert. And they will lead you downstairs for a reflection on, we're reading the Gospel of Luke.
and for the several weeks we're going to go through that, read chapter 2 of the Gospel of Luke, and then uh, they'll be talking about that with you and uh, going through it. So uh, if you didn't make it last week, we'll see you on Sunday at 1030 Mass. Any questions about that? Okay, great. All right, so we're going to finish with a prayer. Uh, I'll just say one more thing. Yep. Okay, in the, in the syllabus for each uh, day, uh, for the weeks, there's a little line there that says, after for read for next time or watch for next time, there's a line there that says Lexio Divina with the Sunday readings. Uh, I meant to explain that way in the beginning, and I'm sorry I didn't. What that means is we want you to like pray with the readings that the church will be praying with on Sunday. You can access those readings by going to the USCCB's website. So usccb.org. There's a little tab at the top that says daily readings, and you can find the readings. It's really easy, really accessible. Basically, what we want you to do is just get in the practice of being familiar with the readings that you're going to hear at Mass every Sunday. Um, it's such a good practice to be in as a Catholic, because if you go in cold, never having read or reflected on the readings, like it's just going to, you're going to hear, you're going to hear the, the, something about the Ammonites and the the Girgashites and the Jebusites and the Mosquito Bites and the, you know, all the bites. And you're like, what, what did I say? That's going to be the word of the Lord. You're like, thanks be to God. I don't even know what was going on there. <laughs> so, like, take some time to reflect and pray with the readings. Like, ask some questions of the text. Um, yeah, we just want you to have a little time of, of being familiar with the readings before they just wash over you on Sunday. Okay? All right, do we have any? We don't have any uh, petitions tonight, but we'd like to pray the Apostles' Creed. Oh, okay. So, page seven of your St. Joseph's Church. Can I have that? It's so easy to go between that and the Nicene. Okay. So, this Apostles' Creed is one of the oldest formulas of the faith. Think of like, uh, you know how like balsamic, like glaze is like the reduction of. It's just the dense, great flavor. This is just the reduction, if you will, of uh, the faith. Maybe that analogy didn't work for anybody. <laughs> it works for me. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Together, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Lord God, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for the brilliant minds of the church. We thank you, Jesus, for creating us in your image. Lord, thank you for the beauty and goodness of creation, which all points to you. Lord, as we go forth from here, may we be filled evermore with the sense of awe and wonder at your beauty and goodness. May Almighty God bless you all, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, guys, we'll see you next week.